Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. You're listening to Agenda by Women in the Arts. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton. Today on Agenda, we'll be talking about menstruation emojis, period undies, and data on gender representation in Australian contemporary visual arts. Yeah, later in the hour, we're going to be joined by Elvis Richardson from The Countess to talk about gender inequality in galleries, museums, and the statistical data on gender representation across art education, prizes, funding, art media, organisational makeup and exhibitions of various kinds across a range, a wide range of galleries, including national and state, regional, commercial, artist-run galleries and contemporary art spaces. Whew. <laughs> That's a lot of data that we're going to be talking about shortly. But before that, there are 800 million people who are currently menstruating and it's still relatively a taboo topic. Yeah, 800 million people, like lots of people are doing it, but we don't really talk about it or at least we avoid talking about it directly. Um, I know I work in a predominantly male environment, like working environment, and there's only one other woman that I work with. And I know that like uh, last month she was talking like saying how like incredible, the incredible amount of pain that she was in. And she's like a really smart woman, incredibly good at her job um, and confident, but she's like, I just don't feel comfortable talking about it explicitly to my male co-workers. And it's something that I've been kind of working to get better at. It's my little act of resistance to like speak very frankly about my period in the workplace and like look people dead in the eye when I'm saying that like I can't get up that ladder today because I'm in a lot of pain and I'm menstruating and like not to be euphemistic about it. And I feel like for a long time I was like just like get through it and like toughen up but it like hurts a lot and it actually like does affect my working life. So I'm trying to not use any euphemisms and be very frank about it. You are doing God's work. I know, I know. Um, but I can't do it alone. Um, in Italy, it looks like they're set to introduce menstrual leave. And actually, similar laws exist already in China and Japan and South Korea. And actually, a few private companies, including Nike, have introduced menstrual leave for their staff, which is very cool. But like, where does it stop? If we start giving people menstrual leave, what's next? Are we going to have paid paternity leave? Or affordable childcare? Look, mate, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> um, there's an organisation that are doing God's work as well to try and introduce a period emoji into our everyday vernacular, which I personally think would be amazing and incredibly helpful because a lot of people speak in emojis these days. Yeah, and you have to be very creative when you're trying to express your <laughs> menstrual experience through... I don't know. There's a lot of weird emojis out there. There should be one for um, periods. But how do you actually introduce a new emoji? I don't really understand that process. Well, at th it's a pretty complicated process. So at the moment, Plan International have designed five period emojis and put them to a public vote. And they... so. They're kind of an, an other organisation that have put these to public vote. And then it goes to Unicode, the Unicode referendum on introducing a new emoji. Um, so there are five at the moment. There's like, they're going to be hard to describe on radio, but there's one that's kind of like a little calendar with a few blood droplets. There are some blood droplets that have little different um, smiley faces and sad faces. There's, there's like a chill period one and like a super angry yeah one. yeah there's one of a, a pair of underwear and there's one of a pad and then the uterus is my personal favorite because I feel like you're really not dancing around the subject you're just sending someone a uterus and that I think that is 
Yeah, that, that has... was my personal favorite, and I voted for that one. Yeah, so. I think that has my vote as well. Looking at them now, I'm like the uterus one seems the most accurate, the yeah. less kind of avoiding. So, mm. and I think like the absence of a period emoji seems relatively innocuous. Um, but when you actually think about the psychic effects of the emojis that are available to us and how that impacts on the way that we communicate, because it does now, like emojis are very important to like the way that we express ideas. Um, it's, it's, it, is, it is significant. And I think it's indicative of the kind of stigmatization that surrounds menstruation and, and more the need to, it kind of reflects our need to just like erase it from conversations and avoid speaking about it in general. And I think that like anyone who's ever menstruated can probably feel some kind of can kind of relate to some experience of like mortification as a child or a teenager, just like the shame that you feel about it, which is like really sad because it doesn't need to be that shameful an experience. It can just be something that happens to you. Yeah, right. So the charity I just mentioned that we're trying to introduce the period emoji recently commissioned research to ask 2000 women aged between 18 and 34 about discussing their period. And seven out of 10 said they felt uncomfortable talking about their period with their male co-workers, which is what you were talking about before. Mm. And the only one and only one in three women felt happy to speak about it to their female bosses and at school almost half reported feeling ashamed to speak to their female teachers 75% said they wouldn't discuss it with their male teachers that's such a shame and I can personally say I missed out on some potentially very valuable PE lessons because of my period but also because I don't like playing sports (laughs) so that's probably more of the reason Um, but you know I had access to safe bathrooms and hygiene products so I don't think it, it really affected my education in a huge way it was just like an inconvenience and something that I felt maybe a little bit shameful about. But for many people, for many young people, getting your period means missing out on school every month. And cumulatively, that has a very disruptive effect on someone's education and eventually the social mobility of people who menstruate in developing countries. Yeah, once you start unpacking it, there are so many implications of having to be shamed about menstruating across different cultures. Even the environmental impact of having disposable sanitary products just because there's such a stigma around seeing period blood. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the problem as well is that even level-headed experts on poverty tend to get squeamish when they talk about periods. Many experts have speculated that the squeamishness over menstrual hygiene is a big reason why, why global health and development advocates kind of ignored the subject for a really long time. Yeah, it has something that has seems to have been avoided, not because people don't care about this experience, just because it's like, yeah, people are uncomfortable about it, so it takes a back seat, which is why... It's very exciting that Diana Sierra's invention um, has been invented. <laughs> um, Sierra, who is the founder of Bee Girl, is an industrial designer who's made reusable undies specifically for people living in developing countries. And it comes with, um, so it's like these undies that come with a mesh pocket that you can fill with whatever absorbent material um, is readily available to you. So um, you can use cotton or grass or torn up fabric, or I think she says even you can use bark. Um, And she describes it as like, you can go MacGyver. You just can stuff it with anything. And it's like one of those products that's been developed for developing countries that isn't completely... I just feel like a lot of those things, there's so little um, research and consultation with people living in those um, regions that... I don't know how to explain it, but it just seems like... Like they're idealistic and they fall flat in practice? Yeah, exactly. And so this seems like very utilitarian, very like using the products that are around you. It's sustainable. And it just like, I think it's really exciting. I think it's going to make more um, children who get their periods able to go to school and it will have a really lasting impact. So it's really very exciting. It kind of reminds me of those Thinks undies, which are the new underwear. Have you seen these that you can work out in and they have... um 
like antibacterial. Yeah, they're made of antibacterial materials. It's so cool. And you so, can wear them for like three days yeah, in a row, apparently. Yeah, I just read that today. You can wear it for three days and like with a heavy flow. Which is wild. Yeah, it's like, sounds incredibly cool. It's like, so it has four bits of tech that make them like antimicrobial, moisture wicking, absorbent and leak resistant. So there's like, no excuse why I can't hit the gym. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Very it sounds really tech. cool. <laughs> super high tech. But also super problematic as a startup company, right? There's an article published by Racked recently that featured an investigation uncovering apparently abusive workplace practices that were happening at Things. Did you hear about this? Yeah, it sounds really so like they market themselves as like a feminist company, but like the women were only getting two weeks maternity leave. Two weeks, which is after like, having a baby and having to go back to work. Unbelievable. Um, I can't remember any of the, what the other ones were. She was like apparently very verbally abusive to um her employees, and um, yeah, it was real. It was just such a shame because it sounded like a really um, really exciting product yeah run by women developed by female scientists and then it just turned out that she's like she's a baddie (laughs) she's a bad feminist and is using commodification of feminist feminist issues to sell a product Mm. which kind of reminds me of beyonce's ethical i mean not ethical not ethical at all active wear line but i think that's a whole separate show and we've spoken about this before in terms of ethical fashion and feminism so maybe things aren't for me. I guess I can't throw my money behind that. So I'm going to go with the MacGyver option. And anyway. Just... <laughs> okay. Well, this will cheer you up. It's a song called Crimson Wave by Taco Cat. Stick around because we're going to be talking to Elvis Richardson about gender representation in contemporary art up next. You're on Agenda on FBI Radio. the way 
Crimson Wave just there by Taco Cat. We're joined now by Elvis Richardson, who recently launched a fundraising campaign for Countess, which is a blog on gender equality in art education, art practice and contemporary art culture. Elvis, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. Um, what prompted you to start Countess? What are kind of the origin stories of the of the data representation? I guess it goes back to my education as an artist at COFA um, in the late 80s, early 90s and, you know, being taught about the Gorilla Girls. And although I didn't understand, you know, the impacts of what they were doing um, fully at the time, I, I guess the statistics always stayed with me as kind of like hard facts you couldn't argue with and that kind of came back and you know I did my own research for many years just looking at magazines and what have you and um, decided at this at a particular point that the time was right to you know do put something out publicly and that was because blogs you know started happening and you could self-publish and so that's how it started and I just yeah. And how long has it been have you been running it for? Um, since 2008 yeah. In that time, has your has your methodologies for data collection changed at all? Um, how do, what is your process for collecting well, that information? Yeah, um, well, the process for collecting information is really based around the kind of gender, you know, structure identities that have existed, um, and it's good that this is why we're moving forward with the blog to kind of open up those discussions and respond to you know current issues but um you know i am reliant on um you know um you know if i look at an exhibition and i see jane and i see peter you know i count jane as a girl and peter as a boy and then if i don't know their gender i kind of go to secondary sources like magazines or their websites and i kind of have to read things until they're I, they're identified in some way and that's how i've collected the data you know historically um, but, you know, I'm a really good example. Like, I changed my name to Elvis when I was 19, and I did choose a boy's name because I wanted, you know, to kind of, at least on paper, kind of play with that. Um, so, you know, in my own methodology, I would go and read, you know, something about Elvis, and I've actually been commented on magazines where people have thought I was a man. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, there are flaws in it, but it you know, we are reliant on that at this point in time. And one of the things going forward we would like to do is to open up those gender categories and kind of create, you know, situations or, you know, best practice where government institutions are actually collecting that data and opening up those categories. And that will allow us to then identify it's, yeah. Yeah, that was one of my questions was moving forward with countesses because at the moment it is men versus women. Is that, Are they the only two categories of... Well, artists work individually and collaboratively. So, mm. um, you know, I've counted those kind of structures as mm. well. But, yeah, primarily in a gender, you know, binary. Mm. Um, and, you know, out of the shows that I have counted over the years, I haven't actually encountered anyone who's identified outside of those binaries or been identified, do you know what I mean? So, you know, that's the kind of thing that hopefully we can help to, you know, influence, you know, that there can be more areas where you can actually identify. Yeah. Yeah. So to conduct more like intersectional research. Yeah. With yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we wanted to talk to you about, like mm. as conversations are becoming more... Um, I guess conversations about gender that are beginning to reflect the diversity of people's experience. We wanted to know how mm. moving forward Countess would be doing that and reflecting those complexities. But yeah. it sounds like 
that's what you're doing. That yeah, well, we want to lobby, you know, that as an idea. Like, mm. and you know, we've since we've launched the campaign, we've had feedback. Yeah, get the government to kind of collect the data and provide it. And you know, just a really simple example is, you know, if there's an exhibition, you know, a, a prize show, and you're entering it, you can have female and you know other categories. So it's like creating those categories. Maybe lo- wall labels in, you know museums should say whether they're you know what the if people want to identify gender because artists get identified in a lot of ways and our personal information is quite public Mm. so it's you know your name where you're from what year you're born you know the curator we don't they're timeless you know we don't know when they're born but artists are really stuck in these kinds of things identity signifiers because art isn't just about aesthetics it's about who makes it and where it's made and all that kind of thing as well which yes. is such an, impo- such an important part of doing the research, right? Because yeah. if, if you have a representation of people whose stories are being told via art who are of a very specific category, yeah. it limits the interpretation of the, the yeah, work. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, it would just make people aware of it because mm. when we're looking at art, we might not be thinking about that kind of stuff. But, yeah, if you go, oh, they're a male, and then you kind of notice that as you go through the museum, you know, I'm thinking wall labels, but that... Those kinds of provenance things and collecting and classifying and, um, you know, that kind of public collection um, methodologies, they're, they're mimicked throughout the art world, you know. Mm. And they, rep- they kind of reproduce those biases as well. I thought it was interesting the kind of political importance of those seemingly, like, small administrative decisions to, like, open up those choices. And people think that, like, these big sweeping changes to, like, bathroom laws are, like, the most important thing, but it can be on a very basic, you know, like writing a form kind of thing just to have different options. And it can seem small, but it's incredibly important for those people that are constantly forced to gender themselves or, yeah. you know, subscribe to yeah, things yeah, that don't fit their right. identity. So, yeah. yeah, that's quite exciting, I think. Yeah, and hopefully we can be a part of that. But we're committed to the data collection, so we're working with what we, you know, what we have at this point. And, um, yeah and hopefully influence some changes going forward. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Elvis Richardson from Countess um, about the recent campaign launched um, just last week. Yeah, through Um, the Australian Cultural Fund, yeah. So we're going to talk more about the fundraising campaign specifically after this track from Barrow. This one's called Pretty. Bit of a language warning on this one. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
talk about the earth I'ma guess it's what you is Cause I know this what you work From the thoughts up in your brain To the lipstick in your purse The machete in my chest Plus it's bleeding and it hurts Banata Sparrow just there with Pretty. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Elvis Richardson from Countess. Uh, Elvis, we were just talking to you before about the fundraising campaign that you've just launched at mm. Arts... Oh, you launched it at Artspace mm. last week. Yeah. Um, to facilitate a number of projects moving forward, what are some of the things that you'll be able to kind of facilitate as a result of the funding? Well, what it will facilitate um, is basically time and, you know, research. And, for example... Um, you know, okay, I've done the blog for the last nine years and, um, you know, that's been on my time outside of my part-time job. I have a family. I have a dog. I have to walk twice a day. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, But, you know, I was committed because I could see, you know, that it was actually having an effect in people's responses. So, um, question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So were there any interesting takeaways from the art space talk? Oh, it was just such great feedback. Mm. It was such a good night. And um, yeah, we were really buoyed up by it, actually, and really excited. And um, yeah, I want to thank all the people who've donated to this point um, on australianculturalfund.org.au <laughs> slash project slash countess. Um, we'll pop a link up as well to that. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, so uh, and it's great that it is a grassroots movement and, you know, $5 from individuals actually can add up and go a long way. And I think that, you know, women and the art, you know, community do actually appreciate what the Countess has done. So, for example, like I'm working with three um, young emerging artists and writers um, to do the launch and they're going to be doing, um, running the blog in the future. And um, doing, we've been doing preliminary research. Like, so the first post I did on the blog was actually about educational materials provided to year 12 students and it was like a collaborative project between Caldor Art Projects and the New South Wales Education Department and it was a a resource of video art because I guess you can see a reproduction of a painting but you can't necessarily see a video so they commissioned the artist to kind of release the videos for educational purposes. So one word being commissioned, those artists were paid and there was only four artists in it and they were all men. And like 76% of students who study studio art in year 12 are women and they're giving them a resource on this new art form that I feel women excel in as they you know, have previously in new art forms like photography as well quite significantly, um, given a resource with four men. So, okay, ten years later, it has now eight men and four women. But the women are really kind of high-profile, you know, long-career artists like Tracy Moffat and um, Patricia Piccinini and stuff. And, um, you know, it's like women have to work 15 years longer to get the same kind of, like, um, opportunities and recognition and we recently counted the Venice Biennale, for example, and looked historically at the artist who'd shown representing Australia in the pavilion. And I think it was around 30% of the artists have been women. But significantly, because we know that, 
you know, we know an artist's age and all this other kind of stuff. I do collect that information as well. And um, I was able to identify that most men went to Venice in their late 30s and early 40s and most women go in their mid-50s. Like, so it's like, do you know, mm. like, so for men it's launching their career where for women it's kind of like the capstone. Validating the, Kind yeah, of like long, lifetime. like, that's right, yeah. The retrospective. And that's what data can tell you. It's exciting, yeah. Yeah, and but it also sounds like you are doing a lot of that data. Like I'm wondering how collecting so much of it, and it is such an important resource and one that a lot of people do look to. Mm. So I was wondering how you saw your role or the role of Countess within the kind of arts landscape. What do you see it like achieving? I well, guess, one thing we would like to achieve, and um, this is where one of our members, Miranda, has done some preliminary research and looked at some of the resources that were available for Year 12, and there's... I I can't talk with a lot of authority about it, but from what she informs me, you know, Year 12 students are, um, you know, provided with plates by the education department where they can write essays in response to the final exams, etc. And the teachers can provide resources outside of those, but um, they have to go and get them themselves. And when she looked through all the resources that the education department provide, and it's not about historical art exclusively, um, and if... Um, it's you know contemporary things in categories like environmental art, etc. There were seventeen percent of the resources were of women artists. So that's obviously like something we could just go straight in and say, okay, we'll put together, you know, a resource of women artists that can fit into these categories, and they can be commissioned, and we can apply for funding. That takes time, you know. That's a really valuable thing to do for generations so yeah hopefully I think that's a really great thing we've identified just in our sweeping research as we're working at the moment and it's so exciting for me to work with other people and get that input yeah absolutely because you've been doing this on your own for a number of years well, Which is a huge commitment. It is. <laughs> and like, I, I, okay, I, I published the thing. I also had like many artists who had, you know, they the post came out of conversations and emails. Like, yes, I did do it, but it was in a sense, you know, I had lots of input and help and particular friends that, you know, really helped workshop that with me. But it's nice to have these this new team on board and, you know, it can go somewhere new. It's great. Yeah, amazing. And also to have a variety of voices that yeah. can help with that collection as well. Yeah. So important. Yeah. If you have just tuned in, we'll pop a link up on where you can donate to the Countess campaign. How long is the campaign running for? Um, it'll be for two to three months and into July sometime it'll end. I think at the moment it's the 22nd of July. So, And yeah. you're having, you've had an event in Melbourne as well? To yeah, launch we launched at ACCA and we'll be organising a few more events over the next months to kind of raise awareness and yeah, because our grassroots support is really important to what we do because ultimately I'm an artist, that's why I did it. Um, and to have an art, a voice for artists because, you know, the institution seems to have all the power and, um, yeah, and this is really nice to kind of have an influence on that. Yeah, it's exciting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming in today mm-hmm. to talk to us on Agenda. If you've missed anything, we'll pop it up on the Agenda show page, but we're going to leave now with this track by local artist, exhibitionist. It's a solo project of the incredible Kirsty Tickle. This one is called Hands. Stick around for Backchat up next. You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Mm-hmm.